There will be no personal nor direct attacks on anyone. And I would ask that you please try to um, keep down the loud cheering and the clapping. There will be no booing and no unruly behavior. With that. This is painful and it will be for a long time. Donald Trump, baby. That's right. This man knows what's up. This is Midday Mobile with Sean Sullivan on FM Talk 106.5. Well, Sean's a tough guy. I mean, I think everybody knows that. You know, Sean, uh, he took some licks. He hangs in there. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? I mean, the beer we got drank pretty good, don't it? Did you hear what I said? So this is a brave council. I had no doubt about them. That doesn't suck. If you don't like it, too bad. Last question. Were you high on drugs? Last question. Kiss my Right, uh, 107, FM Talk 106.5, Midday Mobile on a Monday. Glad you're along. Hey, I'm Sean. Live local talk this hour. Your calls, your texts, welcome at 343-0106, 343-0106. Wish I had a way to, like, maybe I'll just cut and paste these in another document because a bunch more questions coming in uh, for uh, candidate for governor, state senator Bill Hightower, but, but he has... He has I had him booked until one. He probably would have stayed, but I had him booked till one. Uh, let's see. A lot more lottery questions here. I will. Uh, okay, I, I will put these in. A, I'll put these in a list, and uh, next time Bill Hightower is back on, uh, we'll ask those questions. Let me bring on my buddy Brendan Kirby from LifeZet.com, author of Wicked Mobile. Also check out his work at YellowHammerNews.com. How you, man? Good afternoon, Sean. I'm doing okay. You, as we were holding there during the news break, and we have a uh, slew of items to talk about and stories you have posted right now, you said, hey, did you hear about the uh, Netanyahu thing? And I said, no. And this is obviously breaking news right now. What, what's going on? Breaking news right now, the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, gave a presentation, televised presentation, and to add to the drama... He explained in Hebrew that he was going to give it in English first and then give it in Hebrew. So he spoke in English and revealed really an amazing trove of information that Israeli spies have uncovered uh, from the Iran nuclear program. They managed to find and actually remove from Iran 55,000 pages of material and another 55,000 pages of material on CDs, files, files on CDs, uh, which extensively C- show how deep Iran's nuclear program went. I'm just, I'm, I'm, they're burning CDs, not putting on thumb, thumb drives. I guess it's, I mean, it's an Iranian thing. Uh, so th- this goes, I mean, this has got to help uh, President Trump double down now on talking about how bad a deal it is. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there's a deadline looming this month for whether we're going to recertify the nuclear deal, and this is going to add... Um, a lot of pressure to, to Trump to withdraw from it, notwithstanding the fact that all of our allies, pretty much except for Israel, are, are committed to it. Uh, but this is, is very interesting. It, it focused on the history of the program. Uh, they had this uh, program called Project Ahmad, which they had always disavowed and had never acknowledged. And these documents lay out their plan to build and test five nuclear warheads. Uh, and then attach them to ballistic missiles, so it would be the equivalent of five Hiroshima bombs uh, on ballistic missiles that could hit targets throughout the Middle East. And um, you know, extensive, extensive material documenting all this. And so, you know, to some extent, it's sort of old news because you know this. Everyone always suspected that Iran was lying, and now this confirms it. But where it gets tricky is 
uh, they say that these lies continued up to the present day. And when, as part of the nuclear deal, Iran had to come clean and admit to international inspectors the full extent of its nuclear weapons program. And they, they denied all this. So <laughs> that's a lie. And, and they were, uh, if this is true, not in compliance from the very beginning uh, with this nuclear deal. Um, and now the question, of course, being, you know, are they living up to the terms now, notwithstanding, you know, the fact that they may have lied about this? But one of the things uh, that seems pretty clear is that they retain the, the nuclear know-how, the knowledge for how to build a bomb. And they, they built, and you might recall this from, from the past, uh, they had built an underground facility buried under a mountain mm-hmm. to protect the nuclear program. Now, they insisted that they be able to keep, keep that facility as part of any nuclear deal, which they were allowed to do. So this facility exists to this day. So they have the facility, they have the know-how, they are going to be allowed to enrich uranium in a few years as part of this deal. Oh, but it's it's for peaceful purposes, Brendan. Peaceful purposes? Yes, peaceful. But once you have all these components, you have the know-how for the bomb, you have the enriched uranium, you have the facility, it's not hard to imagine that if Iran decides that it wants a nuclear weapon, it can combine this pretty quick. Okay. And there's a whole other show, but I'd love to go back. I think people have forgotten all the cloak and dagger stuff that went on around that Iranian facility. Uh, the number of uh, scientists working at that Iranian facility that had bad car wrecks and died. Also, the Stuxnet virus and a whole lot more. I mean, that was a, a fascinating bunch of espionage that went on around trying to keep that uh, keep that facility offline. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, and, and this right here, I mean... Uh, 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 the fact that Iran was not a, not only able to, they didn't just take copies of this stuff, they took the originals. Uh, you know, Netanyahu with great flair said, you may be wondering where are the originals because he shows copies of them. Well, let me tell you right now, they are in a safe place. So they managed to spare them out of the wow. country somehow. I don't know if that would even be believable for a spy novel or a, or a spy movie that you could do something like that. It's, I mean, it is. It's at the level, if you go back uh, 10 years to now, you have the makings of uh, quite a page-turner of a novel. So with that being said, I mean, thinking about Macron being, you know, in last week and talking about urging the president to, uh, you know, to, to, to recertify this, I wonder what he feels like now. I wonder if, uh, you know, the phone's ringing over in, in Paris and they're going, hey, what about now? My guess is that this won't change the mind of any of our allies because they absolutely do not want to go away from the, the nuclear deal. Um, but there's no deal. But, but if they put all of their faith in this deal, as they often do. I mean, it's a, uh, you know our international partners and you know a lot of American officials to a lot of extent put an enormous amount of faith in papers that are signed at, at international conferences. They love it. You know, uh, uh, the the State Department and and the people in Foggy Bottom and the foreign policy establishment, they love uh, documents that are signed with, with um, you know, these big public ceremonies. And if I remember correctly, too, part of the, uh, the, the lubricant, the catalyst for this deal, was a lot of, a lot of money, a lot of greenbacks that they said were uh, Iranian money that, were, that was seized here that was delivered back to the Iranians, I think in cash, if I remember correctly. Well, part of it was cash, yeah. Uh, you know, we had uh, frozen billions of dollars of Iranian assets, going all the way back to the Islamic Revolution and the hostage crisis back in 1979, and that money had been frozen in U.S. bank accounts, uh, you know, for decades. But yeah, that was part of this. Uh, you know, Iran got its money back, and uh, and part of that, uh, you know, very uh, infamous incident, as we 
I think it was like $1.7 billion worth of those funds were actually delivered in cash uh, in a bunch of different currencies uh, that were stacked on pallets and yep. blown in. Uh, coincidentally, we're told uh, the same day that the prisoners that uh, Iran was holding uh, were released. And they said there's no connection to that. Of course not. Coincidence, you know, our, the, the plane full of money leaves and the plane of the, uh, of the Iranian prisoners takes off. Uh, that's, uh, but that we do not negotiate. Connection to that song. We do not negotiate with terrorists, correct? Right, right. right. Uh, Just... that, that's the deal. So, and this is why uh, pulling out of the deal is not as simple as it sounds. You know, the president ran on, you know, he's going to tear up the nuclear, the Iran nuclear deal on day one. Uh, he, he liked to say, and and you know, it was the worst horrible deal. The problem is, even if you think that it was a bad deal, it's tough to put the the pickles back into the jar at this point because, as I said. What was so effective about the sanctions that forced Iran to the negotiating table in the first place was that it wasn't just us. It was virtually the whole world. They really felt the pinch of that. In fact, I mean, you talk about what's going on with North Korea, which I guess we'll get to later. Mm -hmm. As tough as the sanctions are against North Korea, they're not even as tough against North Korea as they were against Iran. So Iran was really feeling the pinch. Well, the problem is we can pull out a deal and we can reimpose sanctions, but if the rest of the world doesn't go along... You know, Iran's already got its money back. As and, and, yeah, and if you're and you're saying if there's still a market for Iranian energy for oil, then what do they care? Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, as long as other countries are willing to trade, because it, it, you have to remember, you know, we don't have very robust trade with Iran. So sanctions from the United States, uh, you know, can go only so far. And unless we want to do something really extreme, like say we're not going to let any business that does business with Iran do business in the United States. Um, you know, which uh, which might be a game changer, but would be very controversial and would hurt a lot of American consumers. Uh, then, yeah, we're, we're kind of stuck. Iran's got the money back. They um, they obviously now have this um, you know nuclear know how that they can start up uh, pretty quickly if they decide to. And uh, they're not really going to be disrupted by sanctions if we're the only ones doing it. So it could be that if Trump, or, you know, or some of, some of his advisors, and maybe he's convinced to go along. Uh, decide that you know the, the the best of a bunch of bad options is to just stay as part of the deal and just uh, you know uh, even though the deal was and, and we're right I mean I got I've got to go to the break but the deal is invalid from the word go if this uh, information that Netanyahu is just taking uh, just bringing out to light right now that deals only exist right when both sides live up to their end of the bargain. Coming right back. More Midday Mobile. Guest, Brendan Kirby. LifeZet.com. YellowHammerNews.com. Author of Wicked Mobile. Grab your questions as well. You're listening to Midday Mobile with Sean Sullivan on FM Talk 1065. Right, 122 FM Talk 106.5 and President Trump's reaction here to the news we're just talking about. I think if anything, what's happening today and what's happened over the last little while and what we've learned has really shown that I've been 100% right. Okay, talking about the Iran nuclear program, we continue our conversation with Brendan Kirby from LifeSet.com, YellowHammerNews.com, author of Wicked Mobile. And uh, so, if somebody's just joining us, Brendan, uh, the what, what what did Netanyahu uh, bring to light today? What was the actual uh, what documents? What did they show? Well, they found this 
warehouse is what it kind of looks like in a section of Tehran, and somehow we're able to get spies into this facility and find that all of the the, the atomic archive of, of Iran, their top secret nuclear files, had been transferred here at some point for safekeeping, and somehow Iran managed not just only to get copies of the material, but the original documents, and pulled them out, and with great flair and fanfare, Netanyahu gave this presentation where he pulled back these black curtains to reveal that they had gotten 55,000 documents in these files, and another 55,000 files on compact disks uh, that constitute this program. And it's everything from diagrams to drawings to memos uh, outlining their plans to uh, even videos and uh, of testing uh, facilities and the whole nine yards. And so it's pretty conclusively, assuming that this is accurate, uh, that, uh, that Iran did just bald-faced lied when they said they never had any nuclear ambitions. And you can go back and look at statement after statement after statement from Iran's leaders insisting no way we, we just this is uh, against their Islamic principles to, to uh, pursue a bomb. Okay, and, and, and most of us assumed, I mean, most of us really, I mean, we assumed that was the truth. I mean, we knew that it was a bunch of baloney, but uh, at least government sources went on with the idea that that was credible. That that was, uh, they were working, at least publicly, I would hope behind the scenes, obviously they knew it was baloney, but publicly that was that was the deal. Okay, we're going to take them at their word. Right, I mean, to, and to be charitable to the Obama administration who negotiated this, they didn't just say we're going to take them at, at our word, they said, you know, the old Reagan trust but verify, mm-hmm. and the reason for doing this is then we can get international inspectors in there and make sure that they're living up to, to their agreements, but as I was, uh, you know, talking to you earlier, uh, you know, one of the great dangers is not just that Iran might secretly build nuclear bombs uh, in violation of the agreement, but that they'll actually live up to the agreement, which has these uh, expiration dates and benchmarks, and so that eventually, uh, you know, they'll be able to legally restart their nuclear program, uh, you know, after these things expire. With no and, sanctions. And, and, yeah, and the information that was released today by Netanyahu shows it wouldn't be that hard to do because they have... Uh, they're going to be allowed in a few years to start legally enriching uranium, they say for peaceful purposes, and they've got the know-how uh, in, in these archives about how to quickly convert it to military uses. They've got a ballistic missiles program that wasn't even part of the deal, uh, and they've got this facility uh, that uh, was buried underneath this mountain that would make it immune to some kind of an airstrike to take it out. Uh, all the components are there to pretty quickly restart it if that's what they decide to do, and uh, and and that wouldn't even be a violation of the deal. <laughs> you know, right. they could do it in you know fifteen twenty years from now, and would would be able to do it, uh, and the deal doesn't cover it. So that is one of the big downsides that uh, you know has been kind of glossed over, I think, in the debate about whether or not they'll cheat. Yeah, and that was something I, I discussed on the show, and it, we'd have to go back in the time machine there to podcast way distant. That I don't know if they exist anymore to bring that up. But I do want to, if we are going to point out something in the recent past, like last hour, when I started off, if you want to go back and double-check me on this, I started off last hour before we got in our conversation with Bill Hightower. I mentioned that uh, one of my musings between the amount of salt in my baked chicken and uh, a couple other items on my list and what could tomorrow bring with Al Sharpton coming to town was I mentioned the Nobel Peace Prize. And if you want to go back and check that, I mentioned that. That was before Netanyahu breaks the news of these documents. And the reason I brought that up and I said, well, we ran out of time last hour, but we'd talk about it this hour was a a musing I had. I said, you know, let's say 
Now, I, 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 have, I am not Pollyanna. I, I, I don't trust the North Koreans. I think this could all be uh, a bunch of smoke. This could be uh, much to do about nothing. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, Brendan, that uh, you have uh, some success. A denuclearized Korean peninsula at the, uh, at the end of discussions and then President Trump being part of this, pushing this forward. There's a denuclearization of North Korea. You had the propaganda stop coming out of South Korea. You have uh, thawing of relationships there. Would the Norwegians, the Nobel Committee, award the Nobel Peace Prize to Donald J. Trump? I'm thinking because in 2009, they awarded it to President Barack Obama, and they say here on their website, awarded to Obama for his extraordinary efforts to strengthen international diplomacy and cooperation between peoples. The committee has attached special importance to Obama's vision of and work for a world without nuclear weapons. Well, the way I see it, that even the Iran deal that seemed to be maybe what he could hang his hat on down the road seems to be built on sand. Uh, If something happens in North Korea, then then Trump actually has more claim to that kind of peace prize than Obama. Well, sure. Uh, you know, Obama essentially got the prize for showing up. Uh, I'm not sure if there he has ever been a Nobel yet. Peace yeah. Prize winner that uh, won the award for achieving so little. And, I mean, that, nothing really against Obama. He, he hadn't right. had time to achieve anything. Uh, you know, if I, if I were Obama and I were in office a few months, and they wanted to award me the Peace Prize, I'd be embarrassed by it. Um, I'd take it. I'd, I'd, done, I'd have done the same thing the president did, President Obama did. I'd have taken it, but I still got to point out that he hadn't done anything yet. And, and he, he didn't seem to be embarrassed in the place about when he took <laughs> it, um, you know, was, was, was my humble opinion on that. But no, look, uh, uh, you know, these awards are obviously very prestigious, but uh, and anything is possible. You know, there's a congressman from Indiana that is leading the effort to formally nominate uh, Trump for the Peace Prize. Uh, I suspect that uh, there's no way they're ever going to let Trump uh, get the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> I just think he's too hated in the international scene. And I think a much more likely scenario is that Kim Jong Un and um, uh, President Moon of South Korea share the prize. Uh, you know, based on the bilateral talks that they have had, and, and that's. That's my guess, but who knows? Maybe uh, Trump will get in there and it'll be a three-way award, but I... I'd be a little surprised. Okay, I mean, but I would ask it this way. If there's a formula, let's say they're in Norway, uh, and let's just, uh, we're going to Little Hammer because I've, because it's, it's it's quaint. We're going to go to Little Hammer. That's where we're going to hold the Nobel Committee meeting. And if I'm saying, all right, uh, fellow Nobelians, uh, here's how we're going to do this. is a formula between uh, the actual accomplishments of the person and the person, you know, with the message. And you could argue that at least in the eyes of the Nobel uh, Committee, that Barack Obama uh, checked all the boxes for them for uh, for aspirational uh, desires here, and this person is going to bring, listen to him. He's a fantastic speaker. He can bring people together. All these things. He hadn't done anything yet, but look, I mean, he's he's got all the trappings of somebody who we believe could do these things. And then you turn around and go, okay, but in this case, we have somebody that uh, he's rough around the edges. He is uh, vulgar. He's crude. He's uh, seems like a bully, uh, but he's actually accomplished something here, getting rid of nuclear weapons. Whatever, if A is more, you know, if, if in equation number one, A is more than B, but it still equals C, I don't care if B is more than A in the next one, if it still equals C, then you got to give the award. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, certainly if, uh, if these talks play out in a way that we get a verifiable agreement with North Korea that they live up to and actually get rid of their nuclear weapons combined with... 
the commitment that those two countries made to formally ending the Korean War. And, and if, if that were to come off, uh, you know, I mean, it'd be hard to pick something that would be, uh, you know, more impactful for the cause of peace than a formal peace treaty between these two countries that have been in a technical state of war since the 1950s uh, and, and, and a denuclearization. Uh, All right, coming right back. More with Brendan Kirby on the flip side here on Midday Mobile. This is Midday Mobile with Sean Sullivan on FM Talk 1065. All right, 135, FM Talk 1065, and Midday Mobile, Monday style. Coming up uh, this week, a lot of, lot of guests on the show this week. Uh, plus, we got a note here. Don't you see that? We got a note from the uh, folks with. Folks with Al Sharpton uh, coming to town. Uh, yes, I, this may be the first, I don't know, I think this is the first email I've ever received from the National Action Network. So I'll save that one. Well, maybe we'll get some of them. Uh, I, I don't think they're going to, maybe they'll book Al Sharpton, but maybe uh, somebody else from National Action Network can, can come on tomorrow. Also, uh, on the way uh, this week, we have a, a lot of interviews with folks that are running in 2018 and people asking about more. Uh, gubernatorial interviews. Oh, yeah, those are coming. We'll give you that lineup coming up very, very soon. All right, return to our conversation with Brendan Kirby from yellowhammernews.com, where a lot of that conversation about Alabama's gubernatorial cycle goes on. Also, lifeset.com and author of Wicked Mobile. But yeah, we got off in a, uh, a different direction here at the beginning of the hour, but I think rightfully so with this information that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu laid out showing that the Iranians weren't exactly honest going into negotiations. Yeah, not, not only going into the negotiations, but at, at the conclusion of the negotiations. You know, one of the, and this is, you know, this is not something to just gloss over as a throwaway by saying, well, we all knew that they were lying about their program. One of the conditions of the deal was that they essentially come clean with the International Atomic Energy Commission uh, or agency and say, um, this is what we had. This this was the, our clandestine program. We've gotten rid of it now. Uh, you know, we're going to live up to the deal, but we're, we're going to come clean and know what we have. You know, that's what Libya did uh, after Gaddafi gave up his nuclear weapons. Uh, but they, they denied, you know, all of this, um, you know, military program and this Project Ahmad that they had had going since the early 2000s. Uh, and, and that was a part of the deal. So, so they're in violation technically right there, assuming this Israeli information is true, and it seems pretty damning and, and pretty conclusive proof. Uh, I want to uh, sh- shift gears, though, because I think we'll be still talking about this tomorrow and the rest of the week. So uh, let's talk about a, another story that was kind of at the top of the stack before this one popped up uh, just about an hour ago. And that is the caravan of people that have been making their way. Uh, they entered uh, Mexico's southern border and now have made their way the whole way north uh, to San Isidro and uh, pushing to get in the United States. Where does that stand today? What's the story on this? Well, the story is they are basically outside of San Diego in Tijuana, and they are close enough that they can see the U.S. border, and they want to all come in through the port of entry in San Diego and apply for asylum, and they're being blocked so far at this point, uh, but that, that's where they stand. 
Now, okay, but but the story is, I mean, you have mentioned this before, that uh, this idea that's almost formulaic anymore, that there's a, uh, people know what to say, and I'm not saying who knows the individual situations of these people and what they're facing, but uh, there has been a trend of people showing up at the border that say basically the same thing, correct? Right, and the first step to getting into the country at a border crossing station, if you want to apply for asylum, is to tell the customs official that you have a credible fear of persecution. Those are sort of the magic words. And some some sort of quick determination is, is made as to whether or not uh, you know, that's genuine and credible. It's a pretty low standard. Uh, but once you meet that base threshold, then you are waved into the country and you are given a date to have your asylum claim heard. Well, the problem is we are so backlogged that that date is months and months or years away. And by the time we get to you, uh, you know, if you've been here um, a couple of years, uh, a lot of those people sort of disappear into the fabric of American life. We don't know where they are. Um, it's hard to track them up and send them back. And that is what's going on. And you've got uh, immigration lawyers that are coaching people to just what you're supposed to say. If you come to the border and say, uh, you know, I uh, uh, the economy is lousy in Guatemala, and I'm, I, I want to, you know, have a better life for my family. Uh, you know, you're going to be stamped and turned around uh, pretty quickly. So, uh, you know, just looking at the numbers, there's been a huge increase in the percentage of border crossers that are claiming this credible fear, absent any real change on the ground in Central America that would lead you to believe that all of these people are being persecuted. I want to, uh, and I had on my list of things to talk about. Almost to me, though, it, even though it'll drive talk radio for probably the next 24 hours, seems silly to uh, continue on the White House Correspondents' Dinner discussion uh, with, with all the news that is broken here, you know, with, with the Iran situation. But uh, quickly, do you think, I'll, I'll do it this way, was, because I said this morning, I think it was a actual win for this Michelle Wolf because among the resist movement or people like that, I think she is, uh, you know, launched at least a maybe a sugar high of a uh, run and a career in some sold-out venues. At the same time, I think what happened at the White House Correspondents' Dinner was a win for President Trump. Do you agree or disagree? Well, yeah, I mean, it certainly makes it easier for Republicans to make the case, uh, you know, that they don't get a fair shake among the national media or among the reporters. Because remember, this was a, a dinner for all the people covering the president, and they already are under... Uh, you know, scrutiny, uh, you know, Trump likes to call them fake news, this and that, they're biased. Uh, and it seems like when you invite <laughs> you invite someone to come on that uh, makes fun of the physical appearance of the White House press secretary uh, and jokes about knocking babies, uh, you know, out of their mothers as part of the abortion process to kill them, uh, that, uh, you know, it, um, it seems like it makes that case easier for Trump to make that, you know, these people are... Uh, Okay, well, and have a little trouble hearing you, but I would I would point out uh, because I try to keep things real here that uh, comics need to be edgy. Not all of them, but some need to be edgy. That's the essence of their material. Uh, the uh, the uncomfortable nature. They're either uh, getting to some kind of truth or they're pushing uh, pushing you to think about things different ways. And not all comics have to do that, but uh, a lot of them do. And I find a lot of edgy comedy funny, but I also am a person that realizes things have their place, and I do believe in ideas like decorum and, and, and the proper setting, and the White House Correspondents' Dinner doesn't seem to be the place for the 
raw edge of comedy, right? Which I, I mean, I, some of the stuff I, I found not funny at all. Some of the stuff I said, well, that may be funny in another venue. But at the White House Correspondence Center, what Dalton this morning said uh, the idea was to singe and not roast. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, I thought a lot of these jokes were in poor taste, and I didn't find them funny. Uh, but I agree with you, even if you did think this was funny, I mean, this is, this is supposed to be, uh, you know, a time for the journalists to get together with the people they cover and, and share a few laughs and uh, take some time off from the partisan wars. And when you have this scorched earth kind of, I mean, a lot of these things weren't jokes, by the way, really. I mean, they were uh, this woman expressing her or political beliefs and, and frustration. They weren't really jokes with, with punchlines. And I agree with you. I mean, the, the trick of these kinds of things, I think, is to have a comic that kind of pokes gentle fun at people and not just the president and his people, but sort of, uh, you know, across the spectrum and be kind of bipartisan at it. Uh, I, I'll tell you who was great at it was, was Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Barack Obama would, would show up at these things. You know, Trump hasn't been to one of these things, but most presidents go. And um, uh, Obama was up there, and uh, you know whoever was writing the jokes for him, you know, wrote pretty good jokes, and, and Obama delivered them pretty well. And he he kind of had that that famous one from a few years ago where he poked fun at, at none other than citizen Donald Trump. I think it was in 2013 uh, where he noted that Trump had criticized him, and he said, "Yeah, I'm making really tough decisions about war and peace, and you're deciding whether or not to fire Gary Busey." <laughs> <laughs> that's, Which I thought was kind of funny. That's the tenor. Uh, that's it wasn't, the tenor. Uh, you know, too mean spirited. Yeah, I think I think if you want to describe Barack Obama, got that was the tenor. That's the tenor of the discussion. That's you know not the same as your HBO special. All right, uh, before before we wrap up here, I want to talk about uh, a story up and yeah, many stories up right now, but this one over at LifeSet.com from you: How former President Obama and state officials swelled the food stamp rolls, and this is a discussion of uh, of food stamps. Also, the you talk about a gigantic piece of legislation. Every time it shows back up, it uh, swallows up Washington. That's the farm bill. Right, and what a lot of people don't realize, I didn't realize it until, I guess until the last time they did this at the Farm Bill, is that that gigantic, uh, very expensive Farm Bill, most of that is food stamps. Uh, you know, the, the majority of the funding in the massive Farm Bill is not subsidies to farmers and that sort of thing, uh, but, but food stamps. It's a, uh, it's a mammoth, uh, huge government program, and it's the main a federal program that helps Americans who can't afford food uh, afford them. So that's that's the backdrop. Yeah, and and it's, I mean, it is a behemoth of a bill, and it, it it's something that when we have time, sometimes to break it down, I think it'd be fascinating. But you talk about this. You said government documents and interviews with elected officials and legal experts indicate that the Obama administration and many state governments use a variety of loopholes and gimmicks to help weaken work requirements and boost participation to its highest level in history in 2013, more than 47.6 million people. Now, Brendan, back when that happened, there were a lot of people on the conspiracy side said that's this idea to topple to make everything implode so like a phoenix from the ashes you can restructure it It, any take from these experts on why that was done why they're pushing more and more people onto food stamps well part of it was there was a genuine need all right so in 2008 there were about 28 million americans on food stamps that was the year you might recall that the housing market collapsed and and the recession started and then Obama came into office and and really did face a genuine economic emergency. So it's no surprise 
that the role skyrocketed after that. As you mentioned, it, it reached over 47 million people. Uh, so a lot of it was, I mean, fewer people were working, people were working fewer hours, and, and there were more people in need. Yeah. What is strange, though, is even nine years now after the recession, uh, that number has come down, but not by a whole lot. Where it, as of January, we had over 40 million people still on food stamps. So that is way, way above the pre-recession high. Uh, and it's, there's a lot of complicated reasons for that, but one of them was the Obama administration encouraged states uh, to apply for these waivers to make it much easier to sign up uh, and, uh, and to gut the work requirement. Something like two-thirds of Americans now are exempt uh, from the work requirement because of exemptions, uh, waivers that their states got. So that allows um, you know, people to, uh, to collect food stamps. And you know, this isn't just a lot of these people are children and, and the elderly and disabled. Uh, and even under the Republican reform proposals, you know, they, there would be no work requirement for them. We're talking about able-bodied adults, which is like four or five million people. And a good chunk of those are able-bodied adults with no kids. They don't even have kids to, uh, to take care of. Um, and, and a lot of those people, like the entire state of California, is exempt from the work requirement. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, yeah. Just uh, they, There's five states that are entirely exempt. Illinois they, uh, managed to exempt all of their residents except for one upper-income county in suburban Chicago. And so when you have these uh, waivers, the work requirement doesn't really mean anything. And they made it easier to sign up. So... Um, you know, rather than have to fill out a bunch of uh, forms and paperwork if you've already qualified for another program, they uh, said, you know, you're automatically uh, qualified, uh, you know, as long as you receive another benefit. And something like 40 states, you know, have gotten waivers for this. That makes a lot of sense. You know, if you are collecting other forms of welfare, you know, why go through the bureaucratic hassle? But the way this has been interpreted in these 40 states is uh, even if something is as, as low as receiving a pamphlet or brochure or getting a referral from a 1-800 line that was uh, paid for by the TANF program, which is cash welfare for, for the needy, you're automatically qualified for food stamps. So that's without looking at your assets or, or your income or anything like that. Um, and then you'd be qualified. So, um, you know, the Republican bill would tighten that up. Okay, and uh, we'll, we'll see uh, by how much, right? Is, is it going to be four or five million people, or is it going to be some number there, you know, smaller? Well, you know, I think you're going to find that uh, there's probably not a whole lot of people that are, uh, you know, making $100,000 or just signing up for food stamps. I think there are some people maybe in that category. Not many. Uh, you know, I think the main thrust behind the work requirement is to try to help become people become self-sufficient. And this was the idea, you know, behind the 1996 welfare reform, was, uh, you know, uh, teach people to fish, as they say, rather than giving them fish. Uh, you know, it's not a huge uh, number of people, but of the able-bodied people, uh, you know, a, a huge percentage of them don't work. In fact, like something like 30% of, of people in that category didn't work a single hour in the previous month, um, and and a whole lot of people uh, work just a few. So this bill would say you got to work 20 hours, and uh, you know if you can't find a job, we're going to put they're going to put seven billion dollars more in the job training programs and apprenticeship programs to try to help you, know, and that will count towards the work requirement. With the idea of hopefully being able to uh, give you the skills to get a job at you know say if you're in Mobile at one of the shipbuilding firms. Um, you know, and, and there's training programs for that. Uh, you know, 
find a whole other story about how ineffective federally sponsored uh, job training programs have been. Uh, but that is the that's the idea to get them into it. And they would also beef up kind of case management to try to um, get people matched up with services that already exist that can help them, uh, you know, improve their education or their job training or you know, deal with childcare or what other other obstacle they might have to work. There he is, Freddie Kirby, LifeSet.com, YellowHammerNews.com. People want to find you on Twitter. Uh, where are you hanging out? At Brendan K. Kirby. All right. Thank you, Brendan. We're coming right back. More of Midday Mobile on FM Talk 106.5. You're listening to Midday Mobile with Sean Sullivan on FM Talk 106.5. One, uh, 156 FM Talk 106.5. Fine bomb on the way. Uh, tomorrow, we'll be celebrating the ninth birthday for FM Talk 106.5. Big interviews coming up this week, too. I'll give you more details starting tomorrow, and we'll line out the rest of the week. Also coming in tomorrow, at least coming into town, I don't think I'm going to get anybody on the show. Maybe, maybe. Oh, absolutely. By the way, if somebody's listening at the National Action Network, I uh, we, will we'll move things around. If Reverend Al Sharpton will come on the show, I will absolutely open the space. So, uh, Al Sharpton coming to town. Uh, this event tomorrow night, uh, 7 o'clock, at the ba- uh, Bethel AME Church. Uh, it says here in this email, uh, tomorrow, Reverend Al Sharpton, Attorney Benjamin Crump to host town hall meeting in Mobile featuring Shakisha Clemens, victim of racially motivated police attack in Alabama Waffle House arrest. Now, so it's moved there. You know, the discussion earlier was that uh, it was rough treatment by the police, but now a racially motivated police attack is what it says in the email here. It says, Clemens, who appeared on Politics Nation, we played those clips this morning with Reverend Sharpton yesterday, was brutally wrestled to the ground by white police officers and arrested over a 50-cent piece of plastic cutlery. Town hall meeting tomorrow to discuss the Alabama Waffle House incident. You know this all for people outside of here who don't want to talk about the detail, and there's a lot of detail to this, wherever you stand on it. Whatever your opinion, there's a lot more detail than the national audience wants. The national audience wants to hear it's Alabama, and they want to hear it's racially motivated. That's what they want. That that fits a preconceived simplifying of any situation here. So this goes on tomorrow. Uh, so and we, you know, tomorrow on the show, either maybe we we will have Al Sharpton here. If not, we'll discuss some of the prior prior projects Al Sharpton has worked on, how they've gone. And what those cases, how those cases have turned out. Kind of go through down a list and see how those have turned out. Does that seem like a good idea? Good. We'll do that tomorrow. Oh, on a positive note, too, uh, thank you, Ben, for sending me this. Uh, You know, we had reported on the uh, we reported on the uh, tornado damage up at Jacksonville, Jacksonville State. Uh, that was uh, back on, uh, what, a couple months ago? Well, there's an all-star lineup country uh, act uh, event coming up with Alabama, Charlie Daniels Band, Jimmy Johnson, Riley Reed, Shenandoah, Darren Knight, who's very funny. This is coming up in September to benefit those folks around Jacksonville. We'll give you more details on that and link it through on our Facebook page. All right, Fine Bomb on the way next. Y'all have a great one. See you tomorrow morning.